Let's begin reading verse number 14 of chapter 4. The Word of God says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. By reason hereof he ought as for the people so also for himself to offer sins. No man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee, as he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared. Though he were a son, yet learned the obedience by the things which he suffered. Being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him, called of God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. As we've studied through this uh, book of Hebrews, we have reminded you often that the theme is that of better things. The audience, the, the uh, person, the intended audience of the book of Hebrews is a Jewish individual who is standing at the door of salvation. Now, we're careful in the way we say that for this reason, because I believe sometimes there are portions that are written to Jewish individuals that have not yet placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but they are conflicted as they stand with 1,500 years of Old Testament Judaism at their back and with the cross of Calvary right there where they stand and with Bible Christianity out in front of them. And they have a decision that they have to make. I think there are places where the book of Hebrews has specifically in mind Jewish individuals that have just placed their faith in Christ. And now they are tempted to go back to that old Judaistic system, uh, but they are being spurred to go on forward in trusting Christ and on to greater and better things in Him. Then I think there's some uh, times when the person that is in sight is the Jewish individual who has uh, already placed their faith in Christ maybe many years prior to this, or, or a few years prior, I guess is the way we should say it. But they've never grown in the Lord because they've allowed themselves to be entangled in the Old Testament trappings of the Levitical system. But I think the thing that's important to keep at the forefront of our mind is that the book of Hebrews is written to Hebrews. And you might say, well, preacher, I'm not a Hebrew, I'm not a Jew. Why are we reading it? Why are we studying it? For this reason, as dispensationalists, and what is a dispensationalist? To be a dispensationalist means to believe and understand that God dealt with uh, mankind in different ways during different time periods. Now, that's, I'll admit, sort of a reductionist elementary definition of it, but that gives you the basic structure of it. In other words, there was a time when God was uh, dealing with a family, and He was dealing with the family of Abraham. There was a time when God was dealing with uh, a people, and it was the people of the Hebrews. And then, of course, that... Those people became a nation. He was dealing with that nation. And uh, now in this day of grace that we live in, he's dealing with the world at large, and he's dealing particularly uh, with the New Testament church. Uh, there'll come a day, one of these days during the tribulation period, he will turn his attention once again to the Jewish nation as a nation. And you might say, well, preacher, what if a Jewish person accepts Christ? Well, uh, being in Christ trumps everything else. And uh, God deals with them according to this day of grace and as a member of the body of Christ. But uh, as such, we understand that if God spoke to different groups of people at different times in different ways, then that means that not all of the Bible is written to us. Now, I want to be very careful with how I explain this. This is obvious, I think, to most people if we really stop and think about it. I mean, when you look at the Old Testament minor prophets, it's evident that that was not written to you or to me. There are things that God is dealing with that are, that are bound to the context of that time, and He's speaking to a distinct group of people. But now, while not all the Bible is written to us, all the Bible is written for us. Uh, the book of uh, 1 Corinthians tells us that these things, talking about the Old Testament truths, were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world would come. 
So God has something for us in it, just like He has for those distinct peoples. And in the book of Hebrews, and it is a New Testament book, we understand that the focus and scope, the intent of it, is writing to Jewish individuals. But for us today, there are many truths that we can draw and understand and grasp from it as well. And God has great truth for us, even as Gentiles in this day that we live. And so that's who Paul is writing to. And that's why he's writing. He's urging them to do away with faith in an Old Testament system of law and to embrace faith in the cross of Calvary and in the New Testament system of grace. And as such, he is showing how that Christ is better than the Old Testament law. Uh, all of the things concerning the New Testament system of salvation by grace, uh, the New Testament church, and so on and so forth, uh, are better than the Old Testament system of law. Uh, we studied through the first couple chapters and just looked at the superlative nature of the Son of God, and that's plainly laid out. But now Paul has been... Well, I believe it's Paul. Uh, you might not believe it's Paul. That's okay. One of these days we'll get to heaven you'll find out I'm right. But uh, hey, I, I believe it's Paul. Uh, but whoever the Hebrews writer is that is, uh, that is writing, uh, and you'll just have to be patient with me when I call him Paul, uh, Paul is writing, and in chapters 3 and 4, he begins to lay out a systematic argument to show this Jewish individual, whoever they may be, why and how Christ is better. Uh, last week we studied the preeminence of Christ, His preeminence, the fact that God had set Him at a place and at a, at a stature higher than the angels, higher than Moses, higher than the prophets. Uh, though there's no question that, that Jesus is called the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. Though there's no question that Jesus, uh, that Moses was a type of Jesus. And though there's no question that Jesus, of course, was a prophet as well as the Son of God. He is superlative to all them. He is placed in a category apart unto himself. Well, this week we begin in the verses that we've read with what is probably the largest portion of the book of Hebrews and what is, I believe, the most central argument of the book of Hebrews. And it centers around the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Christ came in His earthly ministry, He functioned primarily as a prophet. He related the will and mind of God in a way unparalleled to the human race. He expressed, the book of Hebrews talks about He's the express image of God. He's the brightness of His glory. He relayed God's mind and will to humanity. One of these days, the Bible teaches us that Christ is going to return in power and in glory. And when He does, He's going to set up a throne in Jerusalem. He's going to sit on the throne of His father David, and He's going to rule and reign in righteousness. When He comes in the future, He'll be coming as King. But right now, the Lord Jesus is occupied in the ministry of the priesthood. The priesthood on behalf of every believer at the right hand of God the Father. And Paul is going to show us and lay out systematically why Jesus is a priest, why He has the right to be a priest, why He is a better priest for us than the Old Testament priests uh, that were the sons of Aaron, that were the tribe of Levi, why He is far better than them. So he has laid out a basic fact in verse number 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, here's the first thought we're going to think about. We're going to think about the fact that Christ is a real priest. Now, you say, preacher, what do you mean by that? Well, Christ is functioning right now as our advocate on the right hand of the Father. Now, to you and I, we can sort of accept that pretty handily. But to a, a Jewish individual standing at this place in history, there would have been some serious questions he would have asked. Uh, he would have asked, well, what, what allows Jesus to be a priest? How is he fit to be a priest? How has he been instituted in that role? And I want you to notice three simple thoughts as he lays out this, this truth. Now, again, we're going to talk in a little while what enables or what justifies Jesus being a priest. But right now we're going to look at what's qualifying him to be a priest. And the first thing he mentions is his name. Now, again, that may not ring very relevant to you and I, but in the Old Testament times, the name of a priest, their lineage, their, their pedigree, their history, their ancestry meant a lot. You've got to remember, these guys, they were the sons of Aaron, and no one could be a priest unless they were a son of Aaron. 
In fact, there were Levites. Not everybody that was a Levite was a priest. Only the sons and descendants of Aaron. Now you say, what's the difference? Well, you've got to remember, Levi lived about 450 years before Aaron did. Uh, Levi was one of the sons of, uh, of uh, Jacob. And so uh, there would have been a lot of people that were in uh, the, the land of Egypt that were uh, under that uh, servitude and slavery. Uh, there would have been a multitude of them. Some people estimate between a million and two million. And a good portion of those would have been sons of Levi. But only the sons of Aaron were appointed to the priesthood. So this was a very select, very small group of people that were allowed to be priests. So how is Jesus allowed to be priest? Well, in verse number 14, notice that he points to his name as being a reason we can have confidence. He points first off that his name is a conquering name. Now you say, what do you mean? Well, it says, seeing then that we have a great high priest, which by the way, that term great high priest, that's not given to anybody but Jesus. The term high priest was given to lots of men. Sometimes they were good men, sometimes they were bad men. In the Old Testament, Eli was a high priest. And in a lot of ways, I know we think of Eli as being a bad guy because he let his kids run wild. But Eli had sat as a high priest for 90 years. Evidently, he had done something right. God hadn't smitten him. God hadn't, uh, you know, cast him down. Eli was probably a good man in a lot of ways. In the time of Christ, the high priests were Ananias and Caiaphas. Both of those were wicked men that sought for their own glory and for their own self-interest. Uh, there were a lot of high priests, but there's only one great high priest, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He says He is the great high priest that is passed into the heavens. In other words, the Lord Jesus has conquered death. He has experienced the cross. He has come out on the other end of the grave, a conqueror, and He has passed into the heavens. He is seated at the right hand of God in a place where no high priest was ever allowed to enter. Now, there was an earthly seat and throne of God during the Old Testament, and that was the Holy of Holies. And once a year, the high priest would pass into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement on Yom Kippur. In fact, you can still look in your calendars and you'll see Yom Kippur on there. That's the Day of Atonement. And he would make an atonement for the children of Israel. But he was only going into the earthly tabernacle. Jesus has passed into a far greater place. He is seated in the heavens of heavens. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father. He has triumphed over sin. He has triumphed over the grave. And therefore, we can have confidence in Him, knowing that He is seated at the right hand of God the Father. But then notice this. It says, Jesus, the Son of God. Now, this is a far superlative title to being a son of Aaron. Aaron was a human being. In fact, Aaron, because of his failure, because of his sin, wasn't even allowed to go into the promised land. And I don't say that to disparage Aaron as an individual. Of course, I don't think he cares what I say about him right now. But, uh, you know, I don't say that to disparage him as an individual. But merely to say it's one thing to say a son of Aaron. But Paul wants to remind the readers that when you're talking about Jesus, you're talking about the Son of God. He's going to go on to develop this truth further as it relates to Melchizedek and how God appointed Jesus as high priest. But suffice it to say now that his name is superior. It's a conquering name, but it's a confessional name. And you say, what do you mean? Well, it says, let us hold fast our profession. In other words, we don't have to, we don't have to balk. We don't have to shrink away or, or shy away from making a, uh, professing the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we don't have to feel like we have something lesser than anyone else has. Now, you've got to remember, to us as we sit here today, there is an application. In other words, we don't need to be ashamed that we're a Bible-believing Christian. Amen? Uh, we, don't, we don't need to be ashamed that we uh, claim the name of Christ. But for them in this day, it was important because as they faced their loved ones and their friends and, and their neighbors, uh, and it, word got out that they had placed their faith in Christ, they would have been brought under great derision. And they would have said, by what authority do you have to, to believe in Christ? Aren't you afraid that you don't have a, a priest and a temple to go to? And Paul's reminding them that they have a temple far greater than the earthly temple the Jews have. They have a priest far greater than the earthly priest that the Jews had. They have a name they can place their confidence in. And that's the name of Jesus. He mentions his name. Look at verse number 15 and 16. He mentions his nearness. He says in verse number 15, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. He mentions that Jesus knows our nature. Now, I wish I could develop this as, as far as I want to develop it, but I just don't have time to do so. But let me just say this, uh, and he's going to go on to talk about this more, how that the high priest was taken from among men so that he might know what men went through and experienced. 
The Lord Jesus, he, had, he embraced and accepted this experience, not by being made sinful like men, but by being made human and experiencing the difficulty and suffering that humanity experiences. Uh, it's encouraging to me to know this, that the Lord Jesus, we can come to Him, and that's what Paul exhorts them to do, come boldly unto the throne of grace. And when we go to the Lord Jesus and pray, we're talking to one that knows exactly what we are going through. He's been tempted in all points like as we are. One of the great things the Lord showed me in the Word of God, and this is not a deep or, or profound thought, at least not as it, as it is defined by academic sense. I mean, it's right there in black and white on the page. But it was a great day for me when I realized that it doesn't just say that Jesus has been touched with the feelings of our infirmities. But it says we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. In other words, when the Lord Jesus, whenever we pray to Him, His heart is touched by what we need. He doesn't just know our nature. He also knows our needs. He knows what we experience. He knows what we're going through. When we pray, uh, it's not to let Him know what we have need of. He made that clear, that your Father in heaven already knows what you have need of. But it's to remind ourselves that the Lord Jesus has our needs near to His heart. He knows what we're going through. When our heart is broken, He knows what a broken heart feels like. When we've been betrayed, He knows what it feels like to be betrayed. And we could go down a big laundry list of sins, and, or of, of struggles, I'm sorry, that we experience in life. And we can always have confidence that the Lord Jesus has experienced every one of them. Now, you might say, well, preacher, I don't read in the Bible where he experienced every one of them in his earthly ministry. And that's true. The Bible does not record for us everything the Lord went through. In fact, John said that if the, if the whole story were told, if everything that the Lord Jesus did were told, that the world could not contain the books that it would hold. Uh, the world couldn't even contain that amount of knowledge and truth. But I have confidence that the Lord Jesus... You say, why, preacher? Because my Bible teaches me so. It tells me so. Uh, this is a matter of faith, right? This isn't a matter of feeling. Now, it's good when you can feel your faith. <coughs> but it's not about feeling. It's about faith. And I have faith that when my Bible tells me that when I go to Jesus, He understands what I'm experiencing. I have confidence that He knows what I'm going through. He speaks about our nature. Look at verse number 16. Uh, he knows our needs. It says, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When we pray to the Lord as our advocate, He is aware of what we're experiencing, but He's also aware of what best suits our circumstances. I'll confess to you, I don't always know what I need. You ought to see me go shopping with my wife sometimes. She don't even let me go in the grocery store with her anymore because most of the time, the way that it works out, I'm always hungry when we go in. And, uh, and I'm always, man, I'm grabbing all kinds of stuff off the shelf because it seems good at that time. My wife will slap my hand. She'll say, put that back. We ain't got money for it. We don't need it. You ain't going to like it. You'll eat three of those and throw the rest of the bag away or whatever it might be. And uh, I'm glad I have a wife that knows my needs in a lot of ways. But, you know, it's like that with the Lord Jesus, too. Oftentimes when we pray, we have no idea what we really need. Sometimes we're asking for things we don't need, but we think we need. And sometimes we pray, at least this is my experience, sometimes I pray, and I don't even know what to ask for. I don't even know what to pray. I don't even know what I need. Before I ever relay my need to the Lord Jesus, He is aware and He knows what I truly need. And when my needs are not really needs, He knows that. When there's things I don't think I need that I do need, He's aware of that. In a time of need, we have a place we can go to. He's a real priest because of His name and His nearness. But look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 5. This expands this truth a little more. Because of His nature. It says, For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way? For that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. And by reason hereof, he ought as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins. Now, this lays out for us both an encouraging truth, but also a, a problematic question. The reason God chose men was so that they might minister to men. The reason, I don't mean that gender-wise, but I mean as far as species, as far as, 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 uh, as the human race, you know. He chose human beings because human beings were the ones that had to be ministered to. I'll confess to you, it's hard to minister to people that you don't understand, you know. Um, it, it's hard to, when, when there's someone that their heart is breaking over something and you've not been through it, the best you can do is sympathize, but you can't empathize. I've learned in ministry, uh, and I learned this very early on, if you're at a funeral and somebody's lost someone and you've never been in that place, don't tell them you know what they're going through because they know better, you know. 
They know it. You know it. Everybody knows it. I've learned instead just simply to say things like this. I'm praying for you. Uh, I'm praying to the Lord, and He knows what you're going through. Or I might even say something like this. I don't know what you're going through, but I know somebody that does. The Lord Jesus, He can give you comfort. He can give you strength. You see, the truth is, the high priest, he had to be a human being because there's no substitute for empathy. To be able to minister on someone's behalf effectively, you have to at least have an idea of what they've gone through and what they've experienced. But this provides a problem. For if a person has to be human so that they can experience what you're going through and minister to you appropriately, how was God ever going to redeem mankind? I think we can say that the Lord Jesus... He did not just understand and experience what we go through. He doesn't just know what we go through as a human being academically or theoretically or even omnisciently. He has an experiential knowledge of what we go through. You know, there's a sense in which God knows all things, right? God's omniscient. That's what it means to know all things. Omniscient. There's a sense in which God knows all things. But evidently it was necessary that we have a high priest that didn't just know them in a theoretical or omniscient sense, but experienced them so that he might have compassion upon us in an appropriate way. We notice two truths about this. Number one, that he is able to function for us. Because he became flesh, because he entered the human race, because he bore the sufferings and temptations of the human experience, then he is fit to be able to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins on our behalf. He knows what it is. His heart is touched by it. And that's the second truth. Not only is He able to function for us, but He's able to feel for us. He he is able to know what that experience is. This is not something that He does that is out of touch with His personal experience. Now, I want to be very clear with what I say here. And He's going to go on to talk about this in a moment. But I'm not implying that the Lord Jesus ever knew what sin was as far as His behavior and activity. The Lord Jesus never knew any sin. In fact, the Bible is very clear to tell us in three different ways that the Lord Jesus was sinless. The Bible tells us that He did no sin, meaning He never committed a sin. That He knew no sin, meaning that He had no secret sins of the mind or of the heart or of the thoughts. The Bible also says that in Him was no sin, meaning that He had no sin nature. So you say, but preacher, the Bible says He was tempted, and that's true. But you have to understand the word tempted is used in two ways in your Bible. There are times when the word tempted means a solicitation to do evil. And there are times when the word tempted means to be tested or to be tried or to be proven. Now, it is true that there were times when Satan tried to get the Lord Jesus to sin. It's also true there were times when the Pharisees tried to do that, when the the Romans tried to do that, when the Jews tried to do that. That is true. But the Lord Jesus, He did not go through that to see whether He would sin or not. He did that to exemplify that in him was no sin, that he knew no sin, that he did no sin, to prove, to uh, show forth that he had no sin within him. An illustration was given, I thought this was very appropriate, of a fellow that uh, went to a uh, gold refinery. And he watched as the uh, metal worker would uh, fire up the furnace and would uh, put the gold through the process and would melt it down and would, would scrape the dross off the top. And this would go through this process several different times until the gold had reached a purity that the metal worker was satisfied with. But then there was another department of this refinery. There was a gentleman that was called an assayer. And the gold would then go to that gentleman. And that gentleman would go through the same process. He would melt the gold down, and he would uh, put it through the furnace. And uh, the fellow that was there and observing all this asked that gentleman, said, why do you go through this process? Is it not already refined enough? And he said, well, no, that's not what I'm here for. I'm not here to refine it. I'm here to certify it. And the reason that I put it through this is not to get rid of the dross, but to prove that there is no dross. I believe that's a lot. When the Lord Jesus was tempted to sin, it was for that intent. Not to see whether He would sin, but to prove to the human race that He had no sin, that in Him was no sin, that He knew no sin. So it is true that He was tempted to sin in that respect. He was placed through a time of temptation or solicitation to do evil. But there was never any risk that He was going to commit that evil because He had no sin nature. But oftentimes in the Bible, when it talks about Lord Jesus being tempted... It's talking about him being tried, him being put through sufferings and tribulations and difficulties. And so when the Bible says he's been tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin, it is true that in a sense, I believe he has experienced the solicitation to do evil, but not committed evil. But I think the greater application is that he has entered into our sufferings and our experiences. 
So we see in this passage that he is able to function for us, but he's able to feel for us. He knows what we've gone through and what we've experienced. And so as he sits at the right hand of God, functionally speaking, he is a high priest. That is what he is doing right now. When we pray, we pray to God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus is the one that takes our prayers to the ear of God. He is our advocate. He is our bridge. He is our mediator. He is our intercessor to get to the presence of God. There's no question about this. And Paul lays it forth as a matter of fact because it is a matter of fact. Now, here's the second question that I believe a Jewish individual would have asked. By whose authority is he a priest? You see, anybody, at least in the sense of experiencing human suffering, anybody in the nation of Israel could have been a priest in that sense. They all knew what it was to experience suffering. They all knew what it was to be human. There was only a small group of people that were allowed to be priests. And who were those people? It was people that were sons of Aaron that had been chosen by God to officiate in this office. Now, look down at verse number 4. Let's read down to verse number 10. Well, we won't read all of it. Let's look at verse 4. The Bible says, And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. As he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, here's the question that would have been asked. What gives him the right to be a priest? God called Aaron to be a priest, and that's why Aaron's a priest. God called all of Aaron's sons to be priests. That's why they're priests. Now, why can this Jesus, how come he can be priest? Well, once you notice, first off, that Paul establishes that. He says that's true in verse number 4. No man taketh this honor unto himself. You didn't wake up one day and say, I think I'm going to be a priest. Uh, little children did not look at their parents and say, I might be a priest when I grow up one day, not unless they were a descendant of Aaron. So he acknowledges that the priest is chosen by God. But in verse number 5, he points that Jesus also was chosen by God. That God made clear His sign and seal of approval on the Lord Jesus. He says in verse 5, So also Christ glorified Himself, not Himself, if I can read right, to be made a high priest. But He that said unto Him, Thou art my Son, today have I begotten Thee. Now, remember, especially for those that haven't been here in a little bit, or this is your first time, we're building on some things we've already taught. Paul has already established that God has vindicated the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Back in chapter number 1, chapter number 2, he already made clear that God had spoken from heaven, that he had uh, made clear that Jesus was his Son. There was no dispute about that. There was no debate about that, uh, according to the testimony of Scripture. And by the way, the testimony even of secular history concerning the miracles of the Lord Jesus. So many of these things, you know, you'll get told all the time, well, that's just in the Bible. Uh, There ain't no history to back that up. Well, number one, I think the Bible, a a book that has uh, been around for, you know, what, about 4,000 years, especially the older parts of it, I think that's a pretty good seal of authority, right? Uh, You know, most history books don't make it 20 years, but the Bible's stuck around. But even beyond that, secular history does vindicate the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, There's no question about that. So this is an established fact. He was chosen by God, just like Aaron was. But now Paul mentions a name. Now, you got to remember, to us, 2,000 years of Christianity at our back, uh, we're familiar with this. But when this name was uttered to a Jewish individual reading this in the first century, all of a sudden, bells would have went off. Lights would have began flashing. The synapses in their brains would have started running figure eights as they began to think about what Paul is about to say. Verse number 6, As he saith also in another place, This is in Psalms 110, verse 4, prophetically speaking of the Lord Jesus. As he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is an interesting figure in the Bible. We could spend three days, I think, sitting here arguing about who we think Melchizedek is. (laughs) Uh, There's a lot of debate, a lot of dispute about who he is. I, I, I will give you my opinion about who he is before we're all said and done with it. But right now, that is not Paul's focus. Paul wants to remind his readers that before Abraham ever lived, or I mean, I'm sorry, before Aaron ever lived, before Levi ever lived, before Moses ever lived, before the law was ever given, that there was a man by the name of Melchizedek. In fact, the first time that the word priest is found in your Bible, it's found in Genesis 14, and it's talking about Melchizedek. He's a mysterious individual. We don't know anything about his birth. We don't know anything about his his death. We know that he was both a king and a priest, which, by the way, was forbidden under Old Testament law. 
Uh, it was not allowed. In fact, uh, God smote Uzziah, the king of Judah, with leprosy because he went into the temple and tried to offer a sacrifice. It was forbidden for a king to be both king and priest. You say, why is that, preacher? Well, because the priest kept the king in line. <laughs> and the king sort of kept the priests in line. And uh, it's separation of powers is what we call it today, right? That used to be a thing in our country. Um, but uh, he was both called the king of Salem and the king of peace. And he was the priest of God. The Bible says that after Abraham came back from the Vale of Siddim, whenever the uh, Confederate armies had, not Confederate like Dixie, but Confederate like there was armies, you know, fighting together, allied with each other. Um, after they had taken Lot and they had had a battle, and, and Abraham goes with 300 of his hired servants and rescues Lot, and he comes back from the battle, Melchizedek goes out and meets him, and he's got bread and wine. And he gives a sacrifice, and the Bible says that Abraham gave a tenth of all of the spoil unto Melchizedek. Now, there's a lot of things we could say and study and learn and enjoy about the story of Melchizedek. But for the purposes of our lesson tonight and for the purposes of this exposition in the book of Hebrews, what Paul is trying to point out is that Melchizedek, before Aaron ever lived, before Levi ever lived, before Moses ever lived, before the law was ever given, God had a priesthood long before the law was ever given. And he points to the fact that in the same way that Melchizedek... Now, you've got to remember, to this Jewish individual, Melchizedek would have been a very revered figure. He wouldn't have known a lot about him, but he would have understood that Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, paid tithes to Melchizedek. He must have been a man of great honor. And he was accepted in Judaism as being a high priest. Nobody questioned whether Melchizedek was a high priest. And he wants to remind the reader that just as Melchizedek, before Aaron ever lived, was a priest... So also God has a priesthood that predates the Aaronic or the Levitical priesthood. He talks about the choice of this priest. He talks about his exaltation in verses 4 through 6. Look at verses 7 and 8. He talks about Christ's experience as giving him a right to being a high priest. Now remember, he talked about his exaltation, that he was called just like Melchizedek was by God, not by the law, not by Aaron, but he was called by God, and that's a reason he's a rightful priest. But then he talks about his experience as a reason that he's a rightful priest. Verse 7, who in the days of his flesh, this is talking about Jesus, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Now, there are a lot of mysterious things about these two verses we've just read. But I would point a few things out to you just for the purpose of explaining it. One, this is talking about both the experience of the Lord Jesus throughout His entire earthly ministry. That He suffered, that He prayed. Prayer was a constant activity with the Lord Jesus. He didn't just, uh, just when He sat down at meals or just when He was in the temple or the synagogue, but constantly the Lord Jesus was in conversation with His heavenly Father. But then, two, more particularly, this is speaking about Gethsemane. I've always had maybe a little bit different opinion about Gethsemane than a lot of people. A lot of people have said that, that uh, Satan was afflicting the Lord Jesus in Gethsemane and that that was the cup that he was praying to pass from him. I, I don't believe that. Uh, I can see why people do. If I get to heaven and that's true, I won't have any reason to be angry at God. I mean, it's not like, you know, God has explicitly said that position is wrong. But I'll tell you what I believe, and it's based upon these verses we've read. I believe that the Lord Jesus was talking about death. And I believe that there are two reasons or two important truths about this prayer. You remember when he prayed, uh, Lord, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will. I believe there are two important truths to understand about what happened in Gethsemane. One, understand that his prayer did get answered. You say, wait a minute, preacher. I, I, I thought he died on the cross. He did. But death did not get the final word. The Lord did deliver him from death. You remember what the psalmist said, Thou wilt not suffer thine holy one to, to see corruption. Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. In a sense, that prayer absolutely did get answered. He did have to drink from that cup, but that cup did not destroy him. But then I would say a second point. I do believe he was praying about experiencing death. And I believe he did it for this reason. Because one of the most universal experiences of all mankind is that of death. You remember what the psalmist said? He said, uh, Thou, God, art our God and our guide even unto death. The Lord Jesus, He passed through the valley of the shadow of death. He experienced what that was. And as a human being, even though as God He knew what it would hold, as a human being, His body had never passed through that veil before. And I think knowing that fear is a natural 
experience when we approach death. You know, you hear all these these all the time. People talking about, oh, uh, old aunt so and so, she died, and she was seeing angels, and she was singing glory, and it was wonderful, and, and you know, an angel passed through the room. And I'm not saying that's not true. I mean, listen, God can do that, but you better be careful about that because death is a scary thing. And you might just find when you get down to the end of your journey and you're laying on your deathbed, even if you do have dying grace, you might find that your heart races a little faster as you pass into a realm that you've never experienced before. Read it again with me, verse 7. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared. He feared. He entered into the fear of death. And he experienced that for us and with us. Now, why did he do it? Verse number 8. Though he were a son, and that's true, he's the son of God. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. What does that mean? Well, I think it's important to note that it's not implying that the Lord Jesus picked up any knowledge he didn't have prior to that. You've got to understand that as Paul talks about these things, and he's going to go on and talk about how uh, God made perfect uh, the, the captain of our salvation through his sufferings. He's talking about his fitness to be a high priest. And he's saying this, the Lord Jesus went through something that his, his human nature did not want to experience. And it was fearful in a human sense. But for you and I, knowing that we would have to pass through that, he brought his human nature in subjection. He humbled that nature. The Bible says he was humbled even unto death, even the death of the cross. And he experienced those things. And now, when we go to the Lord Jesus, even unto death, we can pray, praying to one that we know has experienced what we will experience and has gone through. So when it says it's learning, it's not saying he, he obtained knowledge he did not have prior to that. But it's saying that in his credentials as a high priest, he is able to add with authority the experience of death, even going through the, the darkest of human experiences, even going through that which is unknown to all of us. He's able to add that to his resume, if we want to use that term. I don't mean that irreverently, but his, his resume. So he talks about, he knows in verse 7, the sufficiency of God. He prayed and was heard, and he knows the sufferings of man, verse 8. Look at verse number 9 and 10. Because of his exploits, he is a rightful high priest. It says, and being made, being made perfect... He became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him, called of God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, here we have this word perfect again. It's important to understand that when, when the book of Hebrews, when it talks about Lord Jesus being made perfect, it's not talking about being made perfect morally. It's, being talking, it's talking about being made perfect ministerially. Uh, having that full resume, if we want to use that term again. Having that full resume. Uh, ha us being able to have confidence in Him as our high priest. And I want you to notice two or three things about this. Notice, number one, that these were personal exploits. He Himself went through death. He Himself experienced this. He being made perfect. He experienced these things. We are not being passed off to another department. Don't that make you mad when you call customer service and get passed around eight times, Right? And you're thinking, who around here does know how to do this job? When we pray, we're getting a direct line to one that knows what we've been through. These were personal exploits. Notice number two, they are in a sense perpetual exploits. The Bible says he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Eternal salvation. A lot of people try to use the book of Hebrews to make the argument a person can lose their salvation. And I found this is interesting. It seems like every time there is a false doctrine, people run to the very Scriptures that refute that doctrine to establish it. Can I give you another example? A lot of people that believe you can lose your salvation want to go to Galatians to tell you that. And they say, well, Paul talked about falling from grace. Have you read the book of Galatians? The whole book of Galatians is about the fact that our salvation has nothing to do with our good works. That we're saved eternally by God, by His grace. And when Paul talks about falling away from grace in the book of Galatians, he's not talking about losing your salvation. He's saying God has called us to a higher plane, that plane of grace. And to go back to trying to get to heaven through our own good works is to fall away from that plane of grace that God has called us to walk in. He's not talking about losing your salvation. In the same way, people try to use the book of Hebrews to say a person can lose their salvation. Well, I, I want to point your attention to one word, okay? I, and let this just settle this argument about whether we can lose our salvation. All right, you ready? It's found there in verse number 9. It says eternal. Eternal. 
Now I understand. I don't have a lot of fancy degrees. I don't. I don't. You know. I. I, I remember one time hearing Tom Malone say, "I know a little bit of Greek." Or he said, "I know a little Greek and a little Hebrew." He said, "A little Greek runs a deli, and a little uh, Hebrew runs a dry cleaner." And that's about my experience in Hebrew and Greek too. I'm not a scholar. I'll, I'll confess that to you. But I will say this to you. I believe I do understand what the word eternal means. I believe it means forever. Now, let me ask you something. If a person got saved, and then right before they died, they committed a sin, lost their salvation, died and went to hell, what were they saved from anyway? Were they saved from the punishment of sin? Evidently not. They died and went to hell. Were they saved from the power of sin? Evidently not, because they sinned and did wrong. Were they saved from the presence of sin? Obviously not, because sin was still a reality for them. You see, we're either, we're either eternally saved or we're not saved at all. Lester Olaf said it this way, and this has always stuck with me. When you got saved, you got given new life, right? Right? Where did you get that new life from? You got it from God, right? What kind of life does God have? Does He have temporary life or does He have eternal life? Eternal life. So if you got your life from God, the only kind of life God's got is eternal life. That's the only kind you got. Now, I know that's simple, but sometimes I think we confuse this matter. And uh, a lot of people run to the book of Hebrews say, well, it talks about holding fast. Well, it talks about, you know, keeping your profession. Yeah, that's all true. I understand that. But don't ever let that get you off track and make you think that God's salvation is anything less than what He said it was. He said that no man shall pluck you out of my Father's hands. No man. Salvation is either eternal or it's meaningless because the reality is none of us can live perfect. So this is, these are perpetual exploits. The Lord saved us, and we're still saved. And in a sense, we might say that as He is our advocate at the right hand of the Father, He is in a sense still saving us. Now, again, I don't want to confuse terms. I believe once you're saved, you're always saved. But what I'm saying is He is still conquering. He is still triumphant. He is still providing us access to God. He is the author of eternal salvation. He's the beginning of it. He's the end of it. Then notice what it says. In verse number 10, uh, by the way, let me back up verse 9, one more thing. It says, unto all them that obey Him. And a lot of people get mixed up on that. They say, well, it says obey. You've got to obey the Lord. Don't you know, you know, Paul talked about being obedient unto the gospel. You remember whenever he was saved on the road to Damascus, later on he was telling Agrippa about it. And he says, uh, O king, I was not uh, disobedient unto the heavenly vision. In other words, what's the gospel? The gospel is you're a lost sinner. You can't save yourself. Uh, Christ died in your place on Calvary, was buried, rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Call upon the name of the Lord, and thou shalt be saved. Believe with all thine heart in the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. So to obey the gospel is to quit trying to save yourself and in faith call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't involve any works, but it does involve a submission of our will to His will, of our way to His way, of our works to His work. So we do have to obey the gospel. If you don't believe that, come church sometime. Every once in a while, there's people raise their hand. They need to be saved. Walk out the door lost. They were not obedient to that heavenly vision, to that call of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So don't get mixed up on that term obey. Look at verse number 10. This is a positional exploit. It says, called of God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So he's laid it out there. He said, here's what I'm getting at. I'm saying Jesus is a high priest. He's not a high priest after the order of Aaron. Never in the Lord's earthly ministry did he function as a Levitical priest. Never in, in his earthly ministry did he wear the ephod. Never did he stand, sacrifice at the brazen altar. Never did he go into the Holy of Holies and give the, day, the, uh, the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. He never did that. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you, there's some, there's some commentators argue back and forth about whether he functioned as a, as a priest in a spiritual sense in his earthly ministry. I don't believe he did. I believe he began to function as a high priest when he ascended into the heavens. We have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, that is passed into the heavens. But a lot of commentators will say, well, he presided as high priest over his own sacrifice and stuff. I don't necessarily agree with that. I understand why people think that. But like I said, one day they'll get to heaven and find out I'm right. But uh, I, So I don't necessarily agree with that. Um, we never see him functioning as a priest. And by the way, before Calvary, the temple was the temple. The sacrifices were the sacrifices. The priests were the sons of Aaron, the descendants of Levi. And so uh, the Lord Jesus was not authorized to be a priest under the Aaronic or the Levitical priesthood. You say, why is that? I can't believe it took me this long to mention this. But don't you know he's the line of the tribe of Judah? He's not a descendant of Aaron. 
He's not a son of Levi. He, he's the son of David. David was of the tribe of Judah. Judah is the kingly tribe. He's the line of the tribe of Judah. So I don't believe he was ever in any part of the Levitical or the Aaronic priesthood. No, his priesthood is the priesthood of Melchizedek. Now, here's what you have to do in your mind. Are you ready? You've got to do a timeout right now. You know why? Because in verse number 11, we are entering into the third warning, parenthetical warning in the book of Hebrews. If you want to know what all these passages are, then come to me afterwards and I'll give you all of these passages. But in the book of Hebrews, there are five parenthetical warning passages. And here's an interesting exercise. Uh, I was telling somebody this last week. Read through the book of Hebrews and intentionally skip those five warning passages. Read it through and intentionally skip them. Then go back and read just those five individual passages each separately. Then go back, read, I know this more reading than a Baptist does of the Bible in ten years, but then go back and read through them and, and put those back in. It'll give you an entirely fresh perspective of the book of Hebrews. Can I give you an example? Here's what's happening. Paul's going through and he's laying out an argument. Then he reaches a point and he pauses and he says, now here's what you ought to do in light of it. Here's what you need to keep in mind because of it. Look at how this reads. This, this parenthetical, by the way, it goes from verse 11 of chapter 5 all the way down to the end of chapter 6. And let's read verse 10 of chapter 5 and verse 1 of chapter 7. Can we do that? And look how smoothly this line of logic goes. Called of God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek... King of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all. I'm not going to continue reading. But you see how that line of logic is so smooth. Now, I'm not saying that those verses in between that shouldn't be in there. It's not what I'm saying at all. I think you know me well enough. I hope you do to know that I wouldn't be saying that. But what I'm saying is, if you read and skip over and then go back and insert it, it gives you a fresh appreciation both for the overall context for the line of logic, and also for those parenthetical passages. Now, you remember I told you at the beginning that we were going we to be kind of stopping midstream? Here's why. Because we're going to go down to verse 3 of chapter 6, and we're going to stop in the middle of this parenthetical passage. We couldn't find any other way to do it that made sense. But I want you to look at verse number 11. Now, remember, he's turning his attention, he's looking at the reader, and he's saying, because of this, here's what you need to understand. Notice the challenge of this priest. We talked about how that Christ is a real priest and Christ is a rightful priest. But notice the challenge of this priest. Verse number 11. We'll read down to verse number 14. It says, Of whom we have many things to say. It's talking about Melchizedek. And hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Now, you remember that there are three kind of, this sounds weird to say, three kind of Jews we're talking to here, okay? We're talking, and, and all three of them are represented in this parenthetical passage. Paul's going to talk to the weak that's those that have accepted Christ, but they're still looking backwards. He's going to talk to the wicked. That's those that are standing at the door. Maybe they've even made a profession, but they've not truly believed on Christ. And he's urging them to accept Christ. And then he's going to talk to the wise. And that's those that maybe for a number of years have been saved, but they're not where they need to be. And the first portion, all that we're going to look at for the rest of this class period, is we're going to look to, at those that are weak. What is he saying to those that are, have just accepted the Lord Jesus, but they are right there, they're looking backwards to the old system of Judaism, and they're not looking forward. Notice he's going to give them uh, two basic principles. He's going to say, number one, they must face their immaturity that they have in the Lord. There's some hard truth here. I'll just be honest with him. First off, in verse 11, he points out that this person, that has accepted Christ, they've truly been saved, but they're wanting to go back to the Old Testament system. He says, first off, you have a mental problem. <laughs> uh, I, I'm tempted to say that a lot as a pastor. First off, you have a mental problem. Verse number 11. He says, of whom we have many things to say, and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. That word dull, you know what it means? It means apathetic. It means lazy. He's going to go on to expand on this here in a few moments. 
But what he's saying here, he's not saying that these truths are not able to be apprehended. He's saying you don't want to hear them because of what it's going to mean. I remember once years ago, I was talking to somebody, and uh, they they went to a church that that used you know a lot of different Bibles and stuff. And and uh, this person is precious to me. I mean, like family to me. And I, I was talking to this individual, and uh, them and their spouse went to this church. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, I didn't go to talk to this person about this, but conversation got around to different versions of, of the Bible. And um, I, I, I told this person, we were talking about it, and I was trying to say some of the differences and stuff, and uh, they were having trouble with it. I said, I'll tell you what, would you do me a favor? They said, sure. And I said, I want you to get your NIV Bible. And they went and got it and sat down with it. I said, I've got my King James Bible right here. I said, I want you to open up and read Acts 8.37 for me. Would you do that in my King James Bible? I handed the King James Bible, and they read through Acts 8.37. In fact, I'll turn over here. Uh, we might. Uh, let me ask you something. If, I, if it took me an extra five minutes tonight, how many people would give me five minutes? All right, so that's 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, okay. I asked them, I said, read in Acts chapter number 8. I said, and I'll tell you what, read verses 36 through 38. So this person got my Bible, and they read, and it sounded like this, because my Bible don't change. It said, as they went on their way, they came under a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. I said, That's what my Bible says. And uh, the person said, Yeah, I know that. I, I've heard that my whole life. I said, Open in your NIV and read it for me. And the person opened in their NIV. Of course, I don't have an NIV up here, praise the Lord. But, but, I, but I'll read to you in the, in the King James what happened. You'll understand what I mean. They read in the King James, it sounded something like this. It said, And as they went on their way, they came under a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized. And that person, they read that, and they said, Yeah. And I said, Read it again. They opened it back up and read it again. They said, where's verse 37? I said, that's a good question. And all of a sudden, this person, their eyes got big as saucers. And they looked at me. They were involved in the church that they were going to. And they said this to me. I'll never forget it. They looked at me. They said, we give these Bibles away to people. What am I going to do? And this person was crushed. Of course, I didn't come into this person's home to crush them, but we just had gotten talking about it. And I said, well, you know, I I don't know. I I said, I'm I'm just trying to show, you know, show you why I believe what I believe. And they said, we we can't. What am I going to do? I mean, we give. And then they did this. They went. They stopped. They closed their Bible. They changed the subject. Can I tell you what happened in that person's mind? They thought about how were they going to show this to their spouse? How, what were they going to say to their Sunday school teacher? What were they going to say to their friends that they had at the church? Is this something that was important enough for them to leave a church? What were they going to do? That person counted the cost and walked away from that truth. Now, that person's still a wonderful person, still one of my favorite people in the world. They're precious to me, and I, and I love them dearly. And they know and love the Lord. They love God. God works in their life. But they were faced with that truth. They counted the cost, and they turned around and walked away from it. That's what Paul's saying about these people. He's saying, you're thinking about the priesthood, you're thinking about the sacrifices, you're thinking about your family. Do you know what a Jewish person went through if they renounced Judaism and accepted Christ? A Jewish family, an Orthodox Jewish family at this time, and it still happens some, would literally go buy a casket, hold a funeral, and bury an empty casket. And if they saw that family member walking down the street, they were not to look at them, they were not to speak to them, they were not to even acknowledge they existed. That's what this person was facing. And what Paul's saying is this, the problem is not that this isn't true. And the problem is, that, is not that you don't get it. The problem is that you've counted the cost and you're not willing to face it. You've shut your mind to this truth because you feel like it cost you too much. They had a mental problem. Notice number two, not only did they have a mental problem, they had a moral problem. Verses excuse me, 12 through 14, they were behind in their duty. Verse number 12, for when for the time uh, ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. He said, part of your problem is you've not been studying your Bible. Now, you say, oh, but preacher, they didn't have the New Testament. I know they didn't, neither did Paul. But God showed these truths through the Old Testament to Paul. 
And what he's saying is this. Listen, you've not been doing your due diligence. You ought to be to the place where you're teaching these things to other people. But instead, these things are having to be taught to you. You say, preacher, you know, what are they supposed to do? Well, not only were they behind in their duty, they were behind in their development. Look at verses 13 and 14. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I love milk. I don't mean like spiritually. I just mean I love milk. Okay? Uh, milk is one of my favorite things in the world to drink. I, I don't want no blue top. I don't want no purple top. I want red top, whole milk, bad for me. Puts weight on. That's what I like. If you're going to give me skim milk, I'm sorry, just give me a glass of water. That's just the way I am. I'll probably have to change as I get older. I can tell I'm in here with an old crowd. Everybody's saying, well, well, you know that skim milk's good for you. Yeah, I know, I know. But I'm 29 years old and I like whole milk. You know? I love milk. But you can't live off of it. If that's all you're getting. Now, you don't want to have a diet without it, especially some, as some of you older ladies know. I mean, you know, you need milk from bones. You don't want that osteo to get. I understand that. But you can't live on just milk. You know, the problem with a lot of believers today, they're living on just milk. That's all they get. That's the problem with a lot of churches. A lot of churches have a meal every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night when the preacher gets up and preaches, and it's always the same thing, milk. That's all it is. It's always the gospel or it's always John 14. Now, I believe in John 14. I love to preach the gospel. But we're to preach the whole counsel of God. We need that as believers to develop. That's part of the reason we do this on Monday nights. We need the whole counsel of God. He's saying you're behind in your development. Milk is good for a child, but strong meat belongeth to them that are full age, even those who by reason of use, by reason of use, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. You know, the other day, we went over uh, with some friends of ours. They had us out to grill out. And I couldn't believe it, man. This friend, I won't say who it is, but they are cheap. I'm talking about cheap, 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 cheap. And uh, I won't say who it is. They lead singing uh, at a church, but, but I'm not going to say who it is, you know. And they're a youth pastor at that church, too. But, man, they're cheap. He is, anyway. She's not, but he is. And, uh, but they had us out. Would you believe that they bought steak? I was blown away. And I went. He showed it to me. I said, hallelujah, man, you bought steak. And uh, we grilled up and we fixed steak. And we had, you know, anytime you've got little kids, you have a separate menu most of the time, you know. You're sitting there eating filet mignon. They're saying, I want chicken nuggets. So, uh, but, but we fixed stuff for, for the kids. And, and we cut up a little bit of that steak and put it on my son's plate. And his mama told him, uh, this is funny to think of, said, you have to eat a piece of that steak. And you don't have to tell me twice. I was getting ready to jump over the table. And it'd just be between me and him. I'd grab it off his plate and say, look, mama, he ate all that steak. He put a piece of that steak in his mouth. He said, ugh, I don't want that. You know what happened? He ain't developed a taste for it yet. When I was a kid, I hated tomatoes. Tomato was like strychnine to me. I hated tomatoes when I was young. I love them now. When I was little, I hated mushrooms. My wife still hates mushrooms. I love mushroom anything. In fact, the other day when we grilled out, they had mushrooms. We just ate We We cooked mushrooms. I just ate mushrooms. There's such things in acquired taste. And there's some things that you grow to like and enjoy as you experience it. You know, the Word of God is that way in a lot of, in a lot of ways, especially the difficult portions of the Word of God. When I first got saved, man, I, I wanted to hang out in John and Romans. And I still love John and Romans. We're going through Romans in Sunday school, in our, our Sunday school class. We've been at it since January 1st, and we're only in chapter 3. I love the book of Romans. But I learned as I began to grow in the Lord not to skip over the book of Leviticus. Not to skip over Joel. Not to skip over Nahum. But to dig into those places. It may take a little extra work, but you'll be amazed what God will do in your heart. He's saying to them, your problem is that you've not been diligent. There's a moral problem. They must face their immaturity. Now, we have a minute and a half to go through three of the most difficult passages in the entire Word of God. Do you think we're up for it? Look at chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. They must forsake their immaturity says, therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of resurrection from the dead, of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this will we do if God permit. Now, here's how we're going to go through it real fast. We already have a lot of context. When he says, notice first off there's a demand in verse number one. He says, therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection. Well, we understand when he talks about perfection, again, he's not talking about moral perfection. He's talking about ministerial perfection. And and in a broad sense, he's talking about theological perfection. And he's saying, look, 
this thing of trusting in Christ and seeing Him as your sacrifice, you need to get that settled. There are greater things God has for you beyond that. You need to get that settled. I remember hearing a preacher say this one time. You know, the Bible says, None other foundation can any man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus our Lord. I love the foundation. You can't have a building without a foundation. But nothing ever gets built if the crew just stands around staring at the foundation. Right? And again, that's a lot of the problem in a lot of churches. That's all they do, sit around and stare at the foundation. I'm for preaching on those things. Don't get me wrong. But God has a growth plan for you and I. And what he's saying here is not saying leave Christ. What he's saying is get those things settled. Get those things nailed down. Now, what are those things? Well, notice three quick truths. Number one, the details of this. So let's just read verse one again. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection. Not laying again, and then he lists six things. So evidently, these six things relate directly to the doctrine of Christ. In other words, who Christ is, what He did for us, what it means to us. It's going to help you as we understand what these six things mean in the context. Number one, they need to forsake the inadequate Old Testament principles. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you there are kind of two opinions about these verses. And, and in some ways, maybe I walked the line in between them. I don't know. I always understood that when it talked about baptisms, it was talking about baptism, like when you get baptized in a baptistry. That when it talked about repentance from dead works, it was saying you ought not keep repenting over the same things over and over again. That when it talks about, uh, you know, faith towards God, it, it's saying that you ought to have your faith in God and get your faith settled. That when it talks about laying on of hands, it's talking about either when you send someone out into ministry or when you pray over them when they're sick. That when it says the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, it was merely talking about just those truths. We need to grow beyond that. But here's what I think it's saying, and I think this maybe fits the context a little bit better. When he says baptisms, he's not talking about baptism in the sense of the ordinance of baptism, but he's talking about the washings that the Old Testament priests had. See, the Old Testament priests, a big part of, of their time was spent washing all the time. Before they could ever do anything, they had to go through a ceremonial cleansing. That's the reason Jews don't offer sacrifices today. You know why? The whole nation is unclean. And they can't give the sacrifice of purification, which is a red heifer, because there ain't no red heifers. That's why if you read these Jewish magazines that, that are kind of like Jewish Christian things, you'll see them talking about them trying to reclone or rebreed the red heifer. The whole nation is ceremonially unclean. Well, to be purified, they'd have to offer the red heifer, mix the ashes with water. That was pure holy water. And they would wash themselves, and that made them ceremonially clean before the Lord. You know what I think he's saying? I think he's saying you need to understand that cleansing doesn't come from a red heifer. It comes from the cross of Calvary. When he says laying on of hands, I don't think he's talking about praying over people that are sick. I think he's talking about the Old Testament when a sacrifice was given. Uh, the person giving the sacrifice would have to lay their hands on that animal. And the high priest would also lay their hands on the animal and pronounce the sins over that animal. And that was supposed to transfer the sins of that individual to that sacrifice. You know what I think Paul's saying? I think he's saying you need to understand your sins have already been transferred. They've already been dealt with. You don't need to go back to the temple to get that done. You don't need to go to the high priest to get cleansed and purified. That's already been done in Christ. When he says repentance from dead works, it's important to understand this is in juxtaposition to the New Testament principle of repentance toward God. In the Old Testament, the idea was this. We're okay. We just need to do better. That was their mentality. We're on the right path. We know how to get to God, but we've maybe not been living right, so we need to repent of those dead works and we need to get right. And so when they went to the temple, that's what they were doing, was they were saying, we need a sacrifice for this past year because we've done a lot of dead works and we need that cleansed away and we'll be right with God. Here's what I think Paul's saying. He's saying, you need to understand that salvation doesn't come just from trying to do better. Salvation comes from not just turning from your bad actions, but turning from yourself and turning to God. Repentance toward God. By the same token, in the Old Testament, they had faith toward God. Now, that's the word Elohim. That's the generic term for God. And their approach to God came from faith toward God. But he's saying to them this, now you live on this side of Calvary. Now it's not enough to believe in God, not even enough to believe in the Jehovah God. You've been shown face to face with Christ. You must place your faith in Christ. I think when he talks about resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, here's what I think. Their belief about the resurrection of the dead was a very one-dimensional thing. You died one of these days, God raised you up. That's it. 
But the resurrection truth in the New Testament is far more vast than that. When a person gets saved, they've already been raised up from their old life to walk in newness of life. Uh, he's showing them that one, you're not waiting one day to become right with God. You've already been made right with God. And in light of that, you ought to walk in this new life that God's given you. And I think, too, when he says eternal judgment, here's what he's saying. The Old Testament Jew, they lived in fear of answering to God one day. Now, it's true we're going to answer to God one day. There's the judgment seat of Christ. We're all going to stand. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. But here's what he's saying. That Jew would have been thinking to himself, well, maybe I ought to go back to the temple. Maybe I ought to give a sacrifice. Maybe I ought to try to get the priest to pray over me because one of these days I'm going to answer to God. Here's what I think Paul's saying. He's saying your judgment's already been passed. It's already been dealt with on Calvary. And you don't live for God because you're afraid one day He's going to come back and catch you. You live for God because He's already grabbed hold of you, loved you, died for you, saved you, born you again, and made you a new creature. That's why you live for the Lord. Not, not because you're in fear of eternal judgment. Not because you're afraid God's going to push you off into hell because you mess up. But because you've been saved by His grace and He's been so good to you. Paul makes a statement of resolve. Notice his determination. We're done. Verse 3. This will we do if God permit. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I've made my decision. Paul was a Jew. Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Born of the tribe of Benjamin on the eighth day. Circumcised, born circumcised the eighth day of the tribe of, of uh, Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. This was a man that knew what it was to be a Jew. And you know what I think he's saying? He's saying, it's all behind me now. He said there in Philippians chapter 3, he said, what things were gained to me, those accounted lost for Christ. Yea, and I count all things but loss, that I may win him, be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but the righteousness which is of God, by faith in Jesus Christ. Saying, I'm done with all that. Saying, you ought to be done with it too. You know, our salvation is not vested in all the good things we do. It's vested in the finished work of Christ on Calvary. And in the same sense for you and I, you know what we ought to do? We ought to get that salvation settled. We ought to get a good grasp, best as we can, of what, who and what we are in Christ. And we ought to go on unto perfection. And not keep replowing the same ground over and over again. We ought to grow in the Lord.